Well, we are in Matthew chapter 20 today as we work our way through this great book, the first book of the New Testament. As you're turning to Matthew 20, let me get us started by asking you to think about greatness. What is greatness? Who is great? By what metrics do we measure greatness? Who is the greatest, the best? Sports fans love to debate who is the greatest quarterback of all time or who is the greatest basketball player of all time, the GOAT. Of course, if you grew up watching Michael Jordan play, there's no debate. (laughs) I've seen both of them play. Anyway, we leave that aside. Such, <laughs> such ranking isn't limited to the elite echelons of the sports world. Many of you are in a government job, and so you know very well who is a, a GS-13 and that you're only a GS-12 for these many years now. In the academic world, There are adjunct professors and assistant professors and associate professors and then full professors and then distinguished professors and all of them know how many books each has published or articles have been written in the last year. In every high school, there are a few elite students who are battling it out for the highest GPA, wondering what schools the others are applying to and keeping track of where they got accepted. I remember even my mid-school lunchroom where everyone in the room knew the cool ranking of the tables in the room. That was the coolest table, and then that was sort of the second coolest. Well, that's about all we kept track of. After that, it was just a a mess of losers, (laughs) and I was among those people. Now, kids, if you can relate to any of that, if any of that rings true for you, then I have, I have some good news and some bad news. The good news is that one day there won't be a cool table. The shenanigans of mid-school and high school one day will be dust in the rearview mirror. The bad news is that adults have all kinds of their own shenanigans, all kinds of their own cool tables, all kinds of categories of ranking and comparing and feeling inferior and and trying to outdo another. But the really good news, the really good news is that Jesus has an otherworldly approach to such things. An otherworldly approach to greatness. Jesus has different metrics for greatness than the world. And Jesus has come in part to free us from that hopeless game that the world obsesses about. And the really, really good news is that Jesus died to forgive those really ugly sins that we can spot so well in others 
and we're so gracious to look over in ourselves. Those really ugly sins of self-promotion and pride, thinking too highly of ourselves, on the one hand, or on the other hand, resentment and jealousy and envy and bitterness. Jesus died to forgive those sins. Well, that's our passage in a nutshell. We could go home, but I think you want your money's worth, so to speak. The passage itself is far more interesting than just that summary. It's more dramatic, and so we will take it in more slowly than that. Look down at Matthew 20, starting in verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, remember what came before this in Matthew's account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus had just taught the disciples this parable of the gracious landowner in the first half of chapter 20. That gracious landowner, remember, was free to give some of his laborers far more than they deserved. And Jesus concluded that parable with, the paradoxical saying of verse 16, the last will be first and the first last. In other words, what seems last and lowly in the eyes of the world will be first, will be first in and most blessed in the kingdom. Jesus used that same saying just before the parable to describe that rich man's inability to come to terms with his spiritual need. Jesus said then, the first will be last and the last first. Those who seem most blessed and most righteous are not necessarily in 
Keep in mind that this kind of teaching with similar themes actually goes back to chapter 18. Matthew 18, verse 1, that began with a question from the disciples, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then Jesus responded by taking a child and using that as an illustration for how any of us, old or young, rich or poor, how any of us enter the kingdom of heaven. In essence, Jesus said, who is greatest in the kingdom? Are you kidding me? Unless you become like a little child, dependent, needy, then you will never even enter the kingdom of heaven, let alone consider any ranking in it. So do you see the relevance that that stuff has for our passage today? The disciples have been fixated on rank and pecking order and and who's ahead and who's the favorite. And Jesus just keeps trying to turn their perspective to his radical, otherworldly outlook on things. And that's why Jesus keeps coming back to the promise of his coming crucifixion, starting in verse 17. It's because the cross is so emblematic for this otherworldly approach to greatness. Three P's, three P words will help us work through our passage. Here's the first, the prediction of suffering. The prediction of suffering, verses 17 to 19, really it's another prediction. Remind yourself of the two previous predictions that Matthew records that Jesus made. Maybe mark them in your Bibles like I have in mind. They are marked out in boxes so I can see them because they're really important. So here they are, if you forgot. Chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then chapter 17, just after the transfiguration, verse 22 As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And now, the third prediction, chapter 18. Let's read it again. Jesus was going to Jerusalem, the the place of the prophets and kings, the epicenter of the Jewish faith. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and as they went, he took the 12 disciples aside. This is just for them. This isn't public. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Not we will, we are. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests of the Jews and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And they will deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised in the third day. Notice that Jesus is getting more specific. There's more detail in this third prediction. It's not only that he'll be killed, but specifically he will be crucified. And how will it come to his crucifixion when Jewish leaders can't execute a man like that? Well, 
the Jewish leaders will hand him over to the Gentile Romans. And by them, he will be mocked and flogged and then crucified. And of course, all three of the predictions end with the promise of resurrection. He'll be raised on the third day. One scholar noted that this reads like a table of contents for exactly what takes place in Matthew 26 to 28. Go read it later if you need a reminder and match it up with this prediction in Matthew 20. No mere man could orchestrate such events. Never mind the resurrection part. I mean, no one could do that. That's miraculous. But even the death part of the prediction with its surrounding events, no one can orchestrate that. Someone might be able to orchestrate their own death. If I told you later this afternoon I'm going to jump in front of traffic in I-25 and kill myself, you would be concerned precisely because I could pull that off. And you wouldn't be impressed at my predictive powers. But Jesus' prediction of his own death Specifics as to where, how, from whom, with so much of it outside of his hands, so to speak. Outside of his hands, so to speak. A lot of people, a lot of things, a lot of dynamics are involved. And yet it was completely in his hands, wasn't it? And that's why we see him here marching to Jerusalem. He is taking steps toward the cross, toward his death. At this point in Matthew 20, it's probably only eight days away from the crucifixion. You say, Matthew 20, eight days away? There's a whole lot of Matthew. Yeah, Jesus stops and teaches within those eight days, and that takes up several chapters. But the narrative here intentionally slows down for the rest of Matthew. All four gospel accounts do the same thing. They give about one-fourth of the Jesus story to the last week. It's mind-blowing. It tells us just in that very fact that this is the point of the story. Jesus came to die. This was his mission. Just take a sneak peek down at verse 28, which we'll get to later, but lock on to that word, came. The Son of Man came. He came. No one talks like that. You can say, I came to the grocery store to get milk, but Jesus is speaking of his pre-existence and his predetermined mission with that single word, came. Came. This was the plan all along. He came to go to the cross. The handwriting has been on the wall from the beginning and is all through the book of Matthew. It's, it's in King Herod's opposition back in Matthew 2 as he tries to wipe out the newborn king of the Jews. It's in every time the Pharisees come to Jesus conspiring how to destroy him, trying to trick him 
get him in trouble. We saw it with the execution of John the Baptist. Jesus said in Matthew 16, yeah, they did whatever they wanted to John. They'll do the same to me. Those are just the breadcrumbs, the writing on the wall. And then we have these punctuated predictions as well. It's fascinating that Jesus gave these predictions to guys who, frankly, didn't get it. They didn't get it. With the first prediction, uh, Peter rebuked Jesus. Over my dead body, Jesus, you're not going to be killed. After the second prediction, they were perplexed. They were greatly distressed. And after this prediction, by the way, there's no recorded response. They don't get it. Why does Jesus give this information to these guys? Well, I love this line in John's gospel where Jesus tells them there, I tell you what I'm up to because we're friends. Friends tell friends what they're up to. I tell you what's going on because you're my friends. No doubt Jesus told the disciples this so that afterwards they would begin to get it, right? After the cross, in anticipation of the resurrection, they would remember Jesus said these things. Jesus was kind and gracious to show them and to show us the readers that the rejection of Messiah, the crucifixion of the Son of Man was no accident. It was no unfortunate turn. It was not his defeat. He was going willingly. It was all according to plan, down to the details. And so Jesus tells them what's to come. The prediction of suffering. Then secondly, the longer section of our passage, we could call it the pursuit of greatness. The pursuit of greatness. It begins with a mother's request. The mother of James and John, two of the apostles, two brothers, their mother approaches Jesus with a request. Verse 21. Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one on your right hand, one on your left hand, in your kingdom. To sit at the right hand of a king would to be literally his right hand man, number two in the kingdom. To sit at his left hand would be next in command. So this is quite a request. But before we too quickly condemn this mother, keep in mind there's there's faith here. She, unlike many others in this day, believes that Jesus is the king and he is ushering in a kingdom. Perhaps she also knows what Jesus said back in chapter 19, verse 28. Remember this from last week? Jesus said to the 12, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones and judge the tribes of Israel. Not only is Jesus king bringing in a kingdom, not only will he reign, these 12 will reign with him. So there's precedent for asking who's sitting where, right? And isn't it just better to ask rather than to wait and to miss out? As 
this very James will later write in his short epistle about prayer, you have not because you ask not. Maybe that's the thinking of the mom. And really, any blame for the bold request is probably owed more to James and John than to their mom. You see, when Jesus replies to this request, you see how quickly he's talking not to the mom, but directly to James and John? You think you can bear the cup? You can drink this cup? The implication is that James and John must likely have set up mom for this errand, which really makes it quite pathetic. Grown men getting their mommy to ask Jesus a question they're too embarrassed, too shy to ask. And Jesus' reply in verse 22 and following removes any doubt that the request was, was not only too much, too far, but also it, it sprung from wrong motives. Verse 22, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? The cup that Jesus is referring to is the cup of God's judgment on sin. Many times in the Old Testament, God's wrath, his judgment, was symbolized as either a cup that was going to be poured out or a cup that he would make people drink down. And so Jesus is asking James and John if they think they can join him in bearing the wrath of God for sin. And of course, they don't understand that. It's right over their heads. They think he just means, are you man enough? Are you courageous? And so they brazenly and glibly affirm, we are able. They will drink a cup of sorts. They will die a kind of martyr's death in the end for the cause of Christ. James will be one of the earliest to be martyred for the faith. John will be exiled to the island of Patmos where he'll die. They will drink a cup of sorts, but they won't drink it like Christ drinks it. His death is no ordinary death. And as for who will be seated at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in a new heaven and a new earth, well, it's not theirs to ask for. It's not even Jesus's to give. He says that's the Father's business. Now, that's alluding to doctrine that is mysterious. This only hints at the father-son relationship and Jesus' submission to his father in his earthly ministry. This is the father's privilege to give. As for the rest of the disciples, when they heard about this bold request, verse 24 says they were indignant. They were mad at these two. They were mad because James and John probably beat them to the punch. James and John had the gall to put themselves above the rest. It was not a righteous indignation that the ten had. 
they too shared the same attitude about things. They breathed the same air. And so they respond with resentment and more rivalry. And so Jesus redirects them all in verse 25. Jesus called to them, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, that is, the unbelieving world, they lord it over them. Lord what? Well, authority, position, honor, rank. They lord it over those over whom they rule. And they're great ones exercise authority over them. Authority, according to the world, means power and privilege and prestige, benefits, others serving them. They lord it over those that they're over. Anyone in the Roman world at that time had already witnessed some of the worst versions of this kind of ruling and authority. But it's even still the case today. There's really not a place in any culture at any time where this kind of thinking is not found. We know it well. We see it in our politics, we see it at the workplace. And we see it in our own hearts, don't we? We see it in little kids who are playing with toys. One toy is there. No one's playing with it. But as soon as Susie grabs it, Michelle is very angry and says, Mine! Jesus says, you know how worldly rulers operate and little kids, lording it over others, being great. Verse 26, but it shall not be so among you as followers of Christ. Now in his kingdom, notice this, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. So here Jesus redefines greatness. The world's greatness is flipped on its head right here. Greatness, according to the world, as I said, is power and privilege, prestige, benefits, getting, not giving, but greatness according to Christ. Greatness in his kingdom is marked by humility, sacrifice, selflessness. Serving, giving. Jesus says this is how greatness should be measured in his kingdom. Is that how you view greatness? Paul, the apostle, puts it so well in Philippians 2 as he writes to those saints. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, this doesn't mean that 
no one should lead. It doesn't mean that no one should excel. This is speaking to an outlook on things, a worldview. It's how we view others and how we view our relationship to them, how we view leadership. That's what's at stake. Not that leadership should be obliterated, but that there's a different way to think about leadership. Good leaders know this. I've heard Mark Dever talk about this a number of times. He points out that before you're in leadership, you think those who are in leadership have it made. All the underlings underneath them do all the doing, and they just make decisions, and they get paid the most. And then Dever notes that once you're in leadership, a lot of that goes out the window, even if you get paid more. You see that as a leader, decisions actually serve those that you're over. You're serving them. You're like an equipment manager trying to make everyone else on the team able and ready to do what they are supposed to do. That's, that's leadership. But it's upside-down leadership in comparison with the world's. If we need any help at all, we just look to Christ. He's the king, right? He's the son of man from Daniel 7, which Tabitha read for us earlier. The son of man who was given dominion and glory in a kingdom, a kingdom which shall not pass away. The son of man with all cosmic authority. What does he say in verse 28? He came not to be served, but to serve. He came to serve. And that's why Philippians 2 goes on to say, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God and didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He became in the likeness of a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, even death, even to death, even death on a cross. Have that mind among yourselves. Now, before we move on to this last section, I just want to take a little time here to apply this with a few different categories of people in mind. I can't help but think of the elder pastors of this church, especially because Peter later on picks up the same language Jesus uses in our passage as he instructs elders on how they should shepherd the church. He says this in 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. There's, there's leadership, yes. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over them. That's the same phrase Jesus used, but it's translated in Matthew 20 as lording 
over them, right? The Gentile rulers lord it over those that they're over. And shepherds of the flock of God purchased with Jesus' own precious blood need to lead the sheep, yes, but they can't dominate the sheep. They don't lord it over them. They're not in it for what they get out of it. Not domineering over them, but being examples to them. If you aspire to be one of our elders someday, you aspire to a good thing. And just know it's hard work. It's a lot of service. Decision-making, yeah. But, but no one's twirling their mustaches and laughing in a sinister way Tuesday mornings at 6 a.m. when our elders meet to pray over the saints and talk about what's best for our church. So thankful for the men I get to serve alongside with. I also think of husbands. Husbands. Some of you know Ephesians 5. You know that wives are to submit to their husbands. And you know you're the head of the home. Well done. Have you forgotten that Ephesians 5 also speaks of nourishing and cherishing your wife? Loving her. Laying down your life. Like Jesus. And so, leadership in the home is never to be domineering. It's never to be demanding. It is serving with sacrifice, with words of encouragement. You do not get a card for your entitlement to boss your wife around or be mean to her. I think of kids. You might be thinking, well, I'm a kid, yeah, but I'm not in any kind of leadership. I'm not even in the student council or anything. But are you looking for, are you eager to serve in whatever capacity the Lord puts before you? Everything you do on a Monday at school is an opportunity to either think more of others or think more of yourself. To either buy into the world's way of looking at things or Jesus' way of looking at things. It's like these glasses, right? Listen, kids. What Jesus is talking about and what you are used to, what the world gives to you, they're like two different kinds of glasses through which we view everything. The world throws these glasses on your nose constantly. You know how it works and what you see when you look through those lenses. And yet Jesus has a different pair of glasses for you to wear. And you've got to keep putting them on and keep putting them on. They fall off, the world throws on their glasses. You've got to take those off and you've got to put Jesus' glasses on for how to look at 
people and privilege and decision-making and meeting needs and such. I think of the whole church body, members of Desert Springs Church. And first, I just want to thank and honor those in our church who serve so ably and well behind the scenes. I think of our deacons. They're, they're like professional servants. Diakonos is the Greek word for deacon. It's also the Greek word for servant. It's in our passage as well. Whoever would be first among you must be your deacon. So, so thankful for our deacons. So thankful that so often when the elders ask a man to consider being a deacon in the church, almost always the first thing they say is, I can do the same stuff without getting some title. Why do I need a title for that? I'll just keep doing the same stuff. And we say, that's exactly what we want. It's exactly why you deserve the honor of such a title. I think of our children's workers, from the teachers to the assistants to the check-in people, the smiling faces, our greeters, the safety team, those who are serving at the coffee bar. And so many other categories. Let me, just, let me just say, and we don't say it enough, thank you. And Jesus thinks you're great. By the way, those who um, are up front, those who are visible, uh, those who are quite visible, don't think of them as not serving. Okay? Uh, the musicians and singers that led us in singing today, they weren't performing, they weren't showing off, they weren't doing it to, well, what else are you going to do? Either use your voice at a nightclub or Sunday morning at church, I guess I'll choose church. <laughs> They're serving us. They're serving our song. They make it easier and more motivated to sing. And yes, even those who bring God's word to the church each Sunday, like I'm doing right now, it's serving. I'm so thankful for the men who share in that work with me, for, for Chase and Alex and others. You should know that when a pastor locks himself in his study for 15 to 20 hours in a week, it's not to get away from you. It's to prepare a meal to feed you. And when we're thinking about it rightly, we're thinking about it in love and in service to you. All right. On to the third point then. The third P is the payment for sin. And this is just the second half of the last verse of our passage. Verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Verse 28 has to be one of the most important verses in Matthew. One of the most important verses in all of the gospel accounts. Mark has the same saying in Mark 10, verse 45. 
But the other two gospel accounts don't have statements quite like this. And the importance of it is in its succinct clarity about the purpose of the cross of Christ. The purpose. You see, all four Gospels tell the story of the cross and resurrection. All four Gospels record Jesus' prediction of the coming crucifixion and resurrection. But only Mark 10.45 and Matthew 20, verse 28, tell us what it's for. Why it had to happen. Why it's such a big deal. Why the story slows down like it does and occupies one-fourth of each gospel account. Matthew 20, verse 28, tells us what was happening on that cross. And it tells us the significance it has for sinners. The Son of Man came on a mission to serve to this extent to give his life as a ransom. A ransom, a payment. A ransom, you can think of it, you've seen it in movies. A ransom is a payment made on behalf of one who is in bondage that they might be freed. We are all by nature in bondage to sin and guilt and death. We're not the innocent party in our bondage to sin. So you might imagine other ransom stories. A kidnapped kid, for instance. That's not his fault. Well, we are under captivity, to be sure. But it is our fault. We have sinned. We've gone astray. Our lives are bent and broken turned against God, focused on self. We're in bondage to it. And the world around us demonstrates it all the time. Our own hearts, if we'll pay attention to them, show it to us all the time. And there's nothing we could do to free ourselves. We should feel the helplessness of that, of being kidnapped by sin and death. And no way to get free. But the Son of Man came. He came to serve us. To be our payment. Not even to make our payment. To be our payment. Isn't that astounding? As 1 Peter 1 puts it later on. Peter writes, you were ransomed. Not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Isaiah 53 went to great lengths to describe it some 700 years before Christ was born. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It's with his wounds that we're healed. He will make many to be accounted righteous. And he will bear their iniquities. 
Jesus surely had passages like Isaiah 53 in mind when he said that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. For many. A multitude that no man can number from every nation and tongue and tribe and kindred. Is that you? Have you been ransomed? Is that your story? Is that your song? Before Jesus can be a model to imitate, he must be a mediator that intercedes for you. Before Jesus can provide a path of new living, Jesus must be a payment for your sin. I wonder if you come to believe that, trust in that, put your hope in that. And specifically that, not that Jesus existed almost 2,000 years ago. Not even that he died on a cross and shouldn't have. Not even that he was raised literally and bodily on the third day. You can believe all that and still go to hell. What specifically we are putting our trust in when we become Christians is that Jesus died on the cross for us. F-O-R. It's all the difference in the world. He's a ransom for us. If you come to believe that and put your trust specifically in Jesus' death and resurrection as your ransom payment. I hope you would today if you haven't yet. And if you have, in other words, if you're a follower of Christ, if you call yourselves a Christian, then you have been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. You have now been freed. You are no longer held captive. You have been freed from the penalty of sin. You have also been freed from the power of sin in your life. One day when Jesus comes back, you will even be free from the presence of sin. And Jesus' blood, his payment, already bought that, so it's already settled. It's as good as done. And even now, his ransom means that you can be freed from the world's outlook on winning, the pressure to outdo others, to be better, to get what's yours, as the world sometimes says. Jesus died to free you of that. Jesus died to free you to focus on others, to serve them like he served you. And we have been put together in a community called Desert Springs Church, a community of freed slaves, freed from sin, free to serve each other. Look around this morning. 
I mean, literally, look around. You don't have to turn directly back. That's a little too awkward. But just, just, get, just give a glance over your shoulder like that. Everyone's doing it. Look around. You know what I see when I look out? I don't see a medical rep. I don't see a CPA. I don't see a security guard. I don't see a safety supervisor. I see freed slaves. I see hundreds of souls out there that were once enslaved to sin and the world's thinking, and they're being transformed. They're free, freed by Christ and for Christ and free to follow Christ's lead in loving others. So every Sunday is like a, a gathering of survivors, happy survivors who gather to recount what happened to them, what Jesus did, and how it changes things forever. So all credit and glory goes to whatever we are, to the Son of Man who came to give his life as a ransom for you and for me. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that in your word you define what greatness is, you demonstrate what greatness looks like, and you offer that payment for our sins, freeing us from guilt and bondage, worldly thinking, and self-focus. We thank you for it. Help us to believe it. And to believe it more, we say, as one man did in the Gospels, I believe, help my unbelief. May it be so for us, Lord. Grow us in faith, in love for you, and care and service for others. We pray in your name. Amen.